Thank you. So, try not to be too long and try to speak as quickly uh, as I can. Maybe should have yes the microphone. Otherwise, the postcard will be more than terrible. So, well, um, between 1880 and uh, 1930, Belgium and Brussels began to be perceived as places where internationalism, as well as a certain conception of cosmopolitanism, could take root. As Daniel Lacroix has shown, the image was self-promoted by the, the Belgian government and its, in, and its institutions, which organized many international events in the country, like congresses, conventions, and world fairs. Before the First World War, no less than seven world fairs were organized in the country. This is quite Im impressive for uh, so, a small, so small a country. The country was semantic in its place among the nations of Europe by internationalizing itself, as also were the Netherlands and Switzerland. Belgium was thus soon perceived as a cosmopolitan country, hospitable to foreign cultures. However, it seems obvious that this hospitality did not extend equally to every foreign country and culture. It was mainly addressed towards certain European nations and it neglected the rest of the world. At this time, Belgium, officially designated as a French-speaking country, was very close to France for this reason. But the country had come to define its own national identity as an hybrid one, divided into a Latin, and the Germaning spirit. These are the definitions of the so-called Belgian soul at the end of the 19th century. The discourse of cultural hybridity was supposed to enable the country to distinguish itself from France and to come closer to Germany, but also to Britain, as an Anglophile attitude had been developing during the century. Here is, for, is for instance, how is presented the, the Belgian symbolist painter Fernand Knopf to the, the English readers of the Pullman Gazette in 1892. Let me just show you an image of the painter. So the journalist says, a very frequent visitor to England just now is Mr. Monsieur Fernand Knopf, the, the, the martelink of the brush the Belgian symbolical painter. It was difficult at first to believe him anything but English. He spoke our language with fluency and proved himself deeply versed in our literature and especially familiar with our later minor poets, the Victorian Corps. So that we can see in the representation of himself uh, posing on the photograph, I'll let you the judge to assess how English it seems, he seems. But well, the painter's Anglomania was, uh, was also known, uh, not only known in Great Britain, but was also known in Belgium, as he himself confessed in the same interview, I quote, I was the target of a good deal of banter. One critic dubbed me Sir Fernand Knopf, but Knopf lived for a few years in Bruges during his childhood and then lived in Brussels, but he had, however, never been to England before the interview. Even, he pretend, even if he pretended to have English ancestry in his family, which wasn't actually true. 
Knopp might be one of the most significant figures who embodied what had become a real Anglomania within the symbolist circles at the fin de siècle in Belgium. This phenomenon was indeed one of the main strategic axes of a cultural transnationalism taking place in the context of a broader sense of cosmopolitanism developed in the Belgian society. In order to understand it, it's, it's, it, it is essential to take into account both visual arts and literature. At this period, Belgium, in Belgium, arts and literature were so interrelated that the Paul Mall Gazette, as you, as you have heard, could indeed present Knopf as the martyr link of the brush or a, as a, point, a poet painter, while Belgian writers like Maurice Marterling uh, or Emile Verhagen were themselves presented to English readers as literary painters, suggesting that numerous images in their writings participated in an old Flemish pictorial tradition. This connection between Belgian painting and literature emerged logically from the definition of national identity since the foundation of the country. Shortly after the Belgian territories gained their independence, official institutions were eager to define the cultural identity of the new country, and to do so, they chose to refer to the prestigious tradition of painting in the Low Countries, from early Netherlandish painting to Peter Rubens and his dis disciples. Historical, uh, historical scenes were highlighted and awarded by the academies in order to affirm the past and therefore, therefore to legitimate the, the existence of the country. For writers, the situation was quite different. For them, it was not possible to claim legitimacy from old literary tradition, which would overlap so efficiently with the territorial limits of the country. French was chosen the official language of the new states. Although Romance and mainly Germanic dialects coexisted on the territory, Belgian authors were therefore strongly subjected to French and Parisian, Parisian tendencies. They first imitated the Romantic and then the Realist movement, albeit with some delay. Romantic Belgian writers were even accused of counterfeiting French authors. However, by the 1880s, the country has obviously gained more recognition on the international stage. After a period when Belgium and Brussels did not seem to exist abroad from an artistic and literary point of view, uh, the, 1890, the 1880s saw the birth of a real expansion, including the colonial projects of King Leopold in the Congo. Pascal Casanova relevantly noted that at this time, Brussels tried to gain a place as a new artistic and literary centre, positioning itself as a rival of Paris. This indeed happened with the organisation of international exhibitions of modern painting, whose functioning was inspired by the English model. These were led first by the group of La Libre Esthétique, the Free Aesthetics, and then by Les Ventes de Twenty. Beatrice Joyeux-Prunel showed that several painters, like Paul Gauguin or Odilon Rodon, profited, profited from their exhibitions in Brussels to gain more recognition in Paris, playing on the competition between the two cities. Of course, the Parisian audience wouldn't allow the Brussels one to appear more in advance. So the same phenomenon happened in the musical field as the Brussels Théâtre de la Monnaie, 
pioneered the introduction of Wagner in French-speaking countries in the 1880s. This emergence of the capitalism melting pot of modernity was made concrete even in its architecture, which was very open to the foreign influences. For Gustave Kahn, a French symbolist writer and poet, the aesthetics of Brussels streets reveal this evolution of the city. He writes, and I quote, since Belgium was founded, Brussels has always tended to be a transitional city between London, Paris, Amsterdam, and Berlin. Its architecture, which had long been absolutely impersonal, developed this aspect of a cosmopolite stock exchange and of an international waiting room. He had, there were in Brussels Flemish facades, boulevard drawn, drawn in the Parisian way, and streets that aimed to assimilate the, the English aesthetics and the taste for, of the country for the English idea of the home. The openness, the cosmopolitanism that characterized Brussels at the fin de siècle was, of course, mainly of European sources. Its main connections were French, German, and British. Among these, I said that the connections between Britain and Belgium were privileged. And it is indeed most interesting to analyze their consequences for the literary and the artistic Belgian avant-garde. Strong ties joined the two countries for several decades. This had already be brought, uh, this had already brought the Bronte sister to a, to a Brussels school in 1842. Many facts and events can explain this privileged rela relation between the two countries. There exist uh, political reasons of this. After the Belgian Revolution in 1830, Britain guaranteed the independence of the new country. In addition, the new elected king, Leopold of Saxe-Coburg, coming from Germany, was the uncle of the future Queen Victoria. There were also many English communities present in the country, since after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, many English people settled in Belgium, particularly in Bruges, and in Brussels, where their presence resulted in the existence of what people used to call, in Belgium but also in, in Great Britain, the English colonies. There were also English communities present in Liège and in Ghent. In Brussels, at the end of the 19th century, the English colony had become very important and was located in the wealthy district of the city, near the London Square and the Bois de la Cambre, where the painter Fernand Knopf and his brother Georges, were often seen. Knopf even built his house in the surroundings of this English colony. The latter had recreated the conditions of daily life à l'anglaise in Brussels during the attention of the inhabitants to a certain form of exoticism. The rise of the modern art market in London during the 19th century is also relevant to understand the cultural connections between Brussels and London at this period. We've already seen that Belgium mainly built its, its, national, its national identity on a pictorial tradition. This can explain the trajectory of a painter like Sir Lawrence Almatadema, who came from the Netherlands to study painting in Antwerp and then moved towards to afterwards to London, where he became famous. English collectors had soon become interested in Belgian art, as illustrated by the emblematic case of the Queen Victoria and the Prince Albert, who acquired many works made by living Belgian artists. Many famous Belgian painters, like Henri Lais, 
or Jean-Baptiste Madou, had great success in London. If Paris was certainly a center for symbolic recognition, London was a very important place to sell artworks, including for fin de siècle artists like Félicien Hobbes. Whereas in France, from the 1880s, what originated beyond uh, the channel could meet some strong resistance in spite of sincere admiration elsewhere, Belgian artists and writers had a stronger interest in British arts and literature, notably in the pre-Raphaelite and the arts and crafts movement. Paul Aron has shown that they, they better understood the social dimension of William Morris's ideas, and they developed their own ideal of social art around the journal L'Art Moderne, a periodical which was inspired in itself by the English form of a journal totally dedicated to criticism that didn't exist in France, actually, or not really as in England. We can consequently observe that symbolists and fin de siècle writers in Belgium benefited from the relations between the two countries in the area of the visual arts. It's certainly not a coincidence that it was the daughter of the already quoted painter Almatadema, the English novelist Lorenz Tadema, who first translated Maurice Martelling's Peleus and Melisande. Neither it is for Alma Strettel, who translated Emil Verhagen. She was often seen in the circus around the Hanover Gallery. She, married, uh, she had married a painter and was a close friend of John Zinger Sargent. Belgian writers were, of course, influenced by English authors. It is enough here to quote the case of Martelling, nicknamed the Belgian Shakespeare, after an article published in the French newspaper Le Figaro by Octave Mirbeau. Of course, this nickname drew the attention of many English critics, and this became a kind of label for the, the Belgian writer. Many articles flourished in the, the English newspapers on the so-called Belgian Shakespeare. When he was asked about his English literary influences, here's what Martelling answered to the journalist of the Pall Mall Gazette. He said, Among English writers, Carlyle undoubtedly has made on me the most profound impression. He has influenced my whole life. The poetry of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Swinburne, William Morris, and all the writings of Edgar Allan Poe, I've studied all of them. But I need hardly tell you that for me, too, as for you, William Shakespeare stands above anyone else. When I wrote La Princesse Malène, I said secretly to myself, I will try and write a play in the Shakespearean fashion, but for a theatre of marionettes. Shakespeare saw life in many lights, as it really is. I see the world darkly. Who knows? The atmosphere may clear round me. And the interviewer finishes by saying, and so through many winding passages into the straight, wide streets of old Gant, Ghent, leaving the Belgian Shakespeare to his dreams. So you've got this image developed of the, the Belgian Shakespeare. Martelling was known in England as particularly erudite in English culture. This was not so common at this time in the French-speaking area. Um, some critics have even dared to say that he was the only person who knew English literature as well as Paul Bourget, already known as a cosmopolitan. Besides the question of inspiration, many Belgians also acted as translators. 
They translated a lot of texts from English to French from the 1880s until the First World War. Maurice Martelain translated John Ford Shakespeare. He also had the project to translate pre-Raphaelite poetry. Georges Eco translated Christopher Marlowe, uh, Beaumont and Fletcher, John Webster, Georges Knopf, the painter's brother, who went many times to England and even wrote that poems in English, translated Oscar Wilde, Lawrence Haussmann, Walter Pater, Arthur Simons, Olivier Georges Destrée, last example, translated an entire anthology of English poets from Blake to Swinburne. Some of them even tried to act as mediators in both directions. The painter Fernand Knopf himself acted as a mediator. He wrote about British art and literature in, uh, in articles published in Brussels and in Vienna even. He also made known Belgian artists in Britain by writing art chronicles in the studio magazine for 20 years. Olivier Georges Destré published also articles on, uh, on British painting and translations of British poets in Brussels and in Paris. The other way around, he also published articles and books on Belgian art and sculpture in London. If we consider these activities separately, it does not make the Belgian, the Belgian case particularly relevant, but it really makes sense if we consider these elements together with the connections between people, taking into account their numerous travels to England and the image they wanted to create of, their, of themselves in the English newspapers. A lot of Belgian artists and writers indeed went to England many times. Although Fernand Knopf confessed in his interview that he had only imagined the English girls in his painting without, and I've just put a few images to let you, um, he even entitled um, his canvases sometimes in the English language, Memories, is not a translation, is the real title of the canvas. So even if uh, he, he said he, he had only imagined the English girls in his paintings without having even been in England before the 1890s, he travelled afterwards to London many times and visited many contacts in the, uh, in the country. Destrel, I've already quoted, corresponded with the English poet Lawrence Binion, librarian, librarian at the British Museum, whom he met every month in Bruges and with whom he also travelled in England and in Italy. Destrel and Binion were not only mediators of their respective national cultures, but also had Parisian contacts who enabled them to work within a triangular network. Ultimately, the famous Belgian poet Emile Verhagen travelled to London in the 1880s. His vision of the city inspired uh, his poetry from Les Flambeaux Noirs, The Black Torches, and even more in his most famous collection, uh, Les Villes Tentaculaires, The Tentacular Cities, which uh, has given a, a metaphor in French. I think in English it doesn't work, but Ville Tentaculaire, this is a, a very common metaphor in, in French. He visited, uh, actually, Verhaun visited London almost every year until the First World War. After 1914, contacts like these were to help Belgian writers and artists when many of them went to, into exile in England, in London. In conclusion, by aiming to rise on the Euro European stage, Belgian symbolists not only targeted Paris, but also the important cultural and imperial centre of London. It is here important to take into account the difference of scale between the cities, 
Brussels, as a second level capital, was actually trying to reach the level of Paris and London. The relation that I've been summarizing must be considered within this triangle, at least. Brussels did not only export her writers and authors with the help of cosmopolitan bridges, the city also attracted foreign artists and writers. These cosmopolitan networks were somehow reliant on the long presence of English colonies in Belgium and on the art market. This position was also translated into distinctive stance, uh, position taking to the Parisian centre. The distinction relied on this idea of a, of a hybrid Belgian identity supposedly located between the Latin and the German spirits. This enabled Belgian symbolists to claim a greater hospitality than their neighbours because of an inner multilingualism. Marteling even wrote about the inferiority of the Latin generation, speaking of the French, for not knowing several languages. These authors, authors thus paradoxically presented cosmopolitanism as a national character. So this is here we have this sort of paradox. Cosmopolitanism became a, a national character for Belgium. The distinctive position taking even becomes stronger with the painter Fernand Knopf, who explains that to him, English art expresses, and I quote, expresses the spirit of the hour. It bears the stamp. It is the actual moment. It seems to me to be historic in feeling and the art hereafter by which this period will be remembered. When compares the attitude of both French and English artists towards Japanese arts, he concludes that while the Englishman can, might assimilate and create an Anglo-Japanese aesthetic, the French will not be able to adapt. According to him, French artists would only be able to quote the Japanese art. Nevertheless, Belgians obviously had very good and privileged relations with Parisian and French artists and writers of their time, but their attitude toward Britain reveals how oriented and interested their cosmopolitanism could be. This elitist cosmopolitanism was, at the end, very dependent on the attraction of British imperialism, as shows this light and this, uh, this last and quite audacious, we can say, we couldn't dare to say so today, uh, uh, this is a remark from Fernand Knopf, he says in this, the same interview, but I carry my admiration for the, in the English into other things than art. I like your word power. It sounds so strong. <laughs> I think of it as typifying the English nation. Have you noticed it? The march of power has always been in the same direction, northwestly, Assyria, Egypt, Greece, Rome, France, England. And then the interviewer to say, Iceland tomorrow then? <laughs> oh no, I don't pretend to prophecy, but there's America. <laughs> Thank you.